passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its power that you still speak through it today. And even as we see its power this morning, as we look at at Genesis chapter 1, God, we rejoice that that same power happens today when we read your word, that lives are transformed, hearts are softened, and that even the dead are raised to life. And so, God, even now we pray that your spirit would come, that you would be with us as we open up your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we live in a culture that is a storytelling culture. We are a people that love stories. I mean, just look around at the popularity of books, of movies, and of TV. There's something about hearing stories that just resonates in our hearts. If you look at all of these stories, I think there's probably one reason why they are so uh, popular, and that's because, in a sense, they help us to make sense of the world. Stories are entertaining, absolutely, but I think that they tell us something about the world, either right or wrong. Every story, in a way, preaches something about the way that the world is. You can look at a lot of sitcoms today, and you can see that they are proclaiming a certain sort of sexual morality or an ethic in their words and in their shows. You look at a movie or a book like Unbroken, and you see the resiliency of the human spirit as well as the power of the gospel. We love stories because they help us to make sense of the world. These little stories, it doesn't matter if they are true, like unbroken, or if they are fictional, like a number of sitcoms, they are, in a way, used to help us to to tell us the way that the world is, or the way the world should be. But even more than that, we, we all have a big story that helps us to make sense of the world. These big stories aren't fictional. At least those who believe them don't see them as fictional. They are really the lenses through which we see the world. We make sense of the world. And and for many people in our culture, the story that, that people ascribe to is what I call the naturalist story. In a search for meaning in this world, the naturalist story says everything just happens by chance. Everything is a completely natural cause and effect relationship going back for billions of years. It's a very popular story in our day and age. Another very popular story is the moralist story. This is a story that basically says the purpose of your life is to be good. The purpose of all religions is to get us to behave, to live good, clean lives. Another story that we see in our culture is what I call the satisfaction story. In other words, we exist to be satisfied. We exist to experience pleasure and entertainment. 
and as the chief end of your life to experience just that. There are a number of stories that our culture tells that are attempts for us to make sense of the world. In reality, many of the people that we run into each and every day will believe a combination of all of these stories. And, and all of these stories are really just attempts by us to give us meaning in our lives. But the question we have to ask is, which story is right? Are any of these stories right? How can we know which story is right? And what does the Bible have to say? Does it provide us with a story to make sense of the world? Believe it or not, actually, the people of Israel were wrestling through this exact same question when they were in the wilderness. They had just escaped hundreds of years of slavery to the Egyptians. They had been immersed in a culture that was far different from what they believed in, had many different gods, was extremely pagan in their worldview. They were on their way to Canaan, a place that was filled with a number of different nations, all with different gods that were worshipped, different stories to make sense of the world. And it's in this context that the people of Israel are feeling this pressure to conform. They're feeling this confusion about which story is right. And it's in this story, as they're asking which story is right, it's in this context that Genesis chapter 1 is written. See, Genesis 1 is a creation story, yes, but it is so much more than a creation story. It is a true story written for the people of Israel, and by extension, written for us as a way to remind ourselves over and over and over again how to make sense of this world. In large part, that's what Genesis 1 does for us today, too. See, we have a number of competing stories in our culture, ways to tell us how to make sense of this world. And it's in the midst of those different stories that Genesis 1 speaks truth. If you've ever felt the pressure from our culture to switch stories, if you've ever felt like your story just isn't right, that, that you need a, a different lens to make sense of the world, then Genesis 1 is for you. So how do we make sense of this world? Well, that's what Genesis 1 is about. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open up and, and follow along. We're going to be going through the entire chapter today, so we're going to be flying this morning. Uh, but before we do that, we're just going to talk briefly about what we talked about last week. Last week, we covered a whopping two verses as we made our way through Genesis chapter 1. And we saw in the first two verses that this is the beginning of the story of God. And as the beginning of the story of God, we were reminded of a crucial truth. And that is that creation is a megaphone that is shouting out to us the great power and the great love and the glory and wonder of God. As we looked at those two verses, we saw that the size of creation, the beauty of creation, the complexity of creation, all of these things point us to God and a God who is powerful and loving. But even more than that, we saw the beginning of how God begins to create the heavens and the earth. We see in verse 2 that God creates the raw materials. See, God is an artist, and Genesis 1 verse 2 uh, describes how God creates things at the beginning as formless 
as void, as darkness, and as this chaotic waters at the beginning of God's unfinished creation. We see that they are a lot like a lump of clay that a potter is about to work with, about to shape and mold and form into his desired outcome. And the rest of Genesis chapter 1 is describing this potter making and forming and molding his creation into what he desires it to be. So let's go ahead and jump into the seven days of creation, starting just with day one, uh, looking at Genesis chapter one, verses three through five. It says this, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. On day one, God speaks light into existence. And I just want you to take a moment and just imagine what it would have been like to be there. Imagine that all you have ever known is darkness. All the creation has ever known is darkness, and yet God speaks light comes into being. It shows us the power of God's spoken word. Even here, right at the very beginning of this story, in verse 3, we're reminded of the incredible power of God's word, the incredible strength of God's word, the creative power of the spoken word of God. Later on in the Bible, as we look in Ezekiel, we see that God's word is powerful enough to raise the dead to life. And this same power is seen in John chapter 11, when Jesus is standing before Lazarus' tomb and says, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus comes forth. We see in Revelation this beautiful description of the power of God's word when it says this. In his right hand, his being Jesus, in his right hand he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like a sun shining in full strength. Now this is a description of Jesus that... that we can, we can often take as a, as a little awkward and weird. This is not saying that Jesus is a sword-swallowing person who belongs in the circus. It's showing the great power of the spoken word of God. It's like a sword coming from his mouth. And that same power is seen here in creation. Many of us can, can trip up on the idea that God creates light first, and, and there's no place for that light to, uh, to come from. He doesn't create sun, moon, or stars at this point, not, in, not until later on. So, so how is there light here at the beginning of God's creation? Well, to answer that, we, we turn to the end of the Bible, to, to Revelation, where it says this in, in chapter 21, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Here in this description of God's perfect new creation, as, as the new Jerusalem comes down from, from heaven to the new heavens and the new earth, we see that there is no need for a sun. There is no need for light because God himself is our light. And we see really that is the exact same thing here at the beginning of Genesis. Now if you're counting and keeping track, we've gone through five verses and we quoted Revelation twice as we're going through this book. And that's not a coincidence. There are a ton of connections between Genesis and Revelation. Just a couple examples for us. 
as we look at these. First of all, what we're going to talk about a little more next week is that Genesis describes the earth before the fall as God's dwelling place. God's ultimate purpose for creation was to live among his creation, to live among us. And of course, as we all know, that, uh, that didn't happen with Adam and Eve's sin. But as we look at the end of the Bible, as we look at Revelation and the culmination of God's plan, the, the biggest moment of the entire Bible, arguably, is when God comes to dwell with humanity once more because of what he has done for us. God starts with a plan to dwell among humanity and he ends with that same plan to dwell among humanity. A couple other things. We see in Genesis that there is a river that flows out of Eden into the rest of the entire world showing that this place, Eden, the place where God's throne is, is where the source of life comes from. When we look at at Revelation, the new Jerusalem, we see again a river flowing out of the throne of God into the rest of the world, reminding us of the source of life. Another thing, uh, the source of light, which we just talked about. God is the source of light at the beginning of his creation. He is the source of light at the end of his creation. In Genesis, we see that God plants the tree of life in the, in the Garden of Eden. And in the end of Revelation, we see that this same tree of life is found in the new Jerusalem. We could go on and on and on, but it is clear that God has a plan. And this plan, from the beginning, has never changed. God had a plan to live among his people, and nothing will stop that plan. Nothing will stop his desire to dwell among his people. Not even when his creation rebels against him, God has a plan, and he will stick with it and do whatever is necessary to accomplish that plan. God has a plan for his creation. Let's take a look at day two. It says this in verse six. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. In day one, God speaks light into existence. And here in day two, God forms skies and begins to form oceans through that same powerful spoken word. If you were with us last week, one of the things we talked about was the chaotic nature of God's creation before it was finished, before these seven days of creation. Last week, we saw that the earth was formless and void, or in other words, it was an uninhabitable desert before God was finished with it. We saw that there was darkness and that there were these chaotic waters that were a part of God's creation before God goes to work. What we see as we begin to look at day one and day two and day three and so on, as we work our way through this, it's important for us to recognize not just that God creates everything, but how God creates everything. You see, every day that passes... In creation, God brings a little bit more order to the chaos of his unfinished creation. In day chapter, in day one, we see that God takes the darkness and he brings light. Here in day 
two, we have these chaotic waters and God begins, begins to bring order to them by creating the heavens or this expanse in between these waters. Day three, what we're going to see in the next day is that God continues to bring orders, order to the land, something that is formless and void by creating land and vegetation. God is bringing order to his creation, speaking order, speaking through his powerful word as he continues to work in Genesis chapter 1. And, and just right now, as, as we're working our way through this chapter, I think it's important for us to take a moment and pause. As we say that God is a God of order, not a God of chaos, the good news is that's not just about Genesis chapter 1, about creation, but that's also true for our lives. If you feel like your life is chaotic, if you feel like your life doesn't have any order, that you are overwhelmed, that you honestly feel like Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, that the earth is formless and void, you feel that exact same way. The good news of Genesis 1 is that God brings order to his creation. And that order includes your life. God is a God of order, not, only, not a God of chaos. Day 3. Take a look at verse 9. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. Well, as I just mentioned, we see that here in this day, God continues to bring form to that which is formless. He takes this lump of clay, which is his earth, and he begins to form it by separating land and, and oceans and creating these things. And we see that as God's creative work continues, we also see that there's a, a complexity that now enters into God's creation. See, here, not only does God form land, but he also creates the first organic material, plants. He begins to create life on his earth. And I think it's, it's appropriate right now to just take a moment and address the elephant in the room here. Uh, you might be surprised as I'm working my way through Genesis chapter 1 that, that I haven't mentioned evolution yet. I haven't begun talking about creation and evolution and this giant debate in our culture. And many of you might have been expecting that to be the focus of this morning as we worked our way through this text. Uh, but I'm going to just be honest. Um, I, I hesitate to do that because that's not the primary focus of Genesis chapter 1. That's not to say that Genesis chapter 1 doesn't have things to say about that, because it certainly does, and we'll talk about those in a second. But if we focus on that, then we're in large part missing the purpose of Genesis 1. We're missing what God is trying to teach us through this chapter. See, there have been a number of Christians throughout church history who have believed a number of different things about this passage. Many of them have been God-fearing, both on different sides of this debate. And I'm not saying that both sides are right by any means. The earth can't be 11 billion years old and 6,000 years old at the same time. That's not what I'm saying. 
But I am saying that we should have humility as we approach this passage. We should have humility as we approach this text and begin to wonder what is the purpose of this passage before we force it to answer questions about science and modern day questions that it might not actually be saying. So with that being said, I might have riled some of you up there. Uh, with that being said, here are a couple of things that we have to affirm as Christians. These are non-negotiables as Christians from Genesis chapter 1. Uh, first of all, we have to believe that God is the creator of all. Genesis 1 makes clear that God is the creator of all. It also makes clear that God is the only uncreated one. We, we can't believe that there was uh, immaterial objects or, or things that existed from the very beginning with God. God is the only uncreated one. We also have to believe that God's creation was created good. It is a good thing that God started his creation. When he got done, he said, this is very good. We also have to believe that there is a historical Adam and Eve. The understanding of the fall that we see in Romans chapter 5 the, the really what is wrong with our world depends on there being an actual Adam and an actual Eve. We have to hold these things as Christians, that God is creator of all, that he's the only uncreated one, that he, his creation is good, and that there is an actual or was an actual historical Adam and Eve. Now, going off of that, I think there are some significant problems in an understanding of evolution, uh, a naturalist understanding of, of our origins. Um, I could mention several things. I just want to mention one thing, and it, it ties into what we just talked about here and just saw here in day three. And that is the origin of life. If I understand evolutionary Darwinism correctly, then it appears that there are two different stories that they tell. First, there is the story of the origin of everything, or, or the Big Bang Theory, as we, we like to see it. And, and it's this process of how everything came into being from, from really nothing. And then we have this second story, and that is really evolution. And that, that story is, is saying that everything that we see, every life, part of life that we see here, started as a single-cell organism that it evolved over millions and billions of years into all of the diversity that we see today. And if I understand naturalist thought correctly, it seems like they take these two different stories and they connect them together, but they're missing out on a link they're missing out on a key point, the origin of life. In his very, very popular uh, TV show, Cosmos, astronomer Neil deGrasse Tyson, he's describing evolution. He spends an entire episode describing evolution. 40 minutes goes by, uh, and he's talking about why this is logical and, and why we should believe this and why it's true. And he gets to the very end, three minutes left, and I'm just going to quote him word for word here. As he's talking about the origin of life, he says this. He says, nobody knows how life got started. Nobody knows how life got started. That seems to be a very, very important question that this naturalistic story doesn't answer. The reality is we've never seen, or we've never seen unorganic objects, things like rocks or salt or water. We've never seen those become organic objects. We've never seen them become even something as simple as a single-cell organism. 
It's never happened before. And I'm not trying to make light of an evolutionist, uh, evolutionary understanding of the world by saying, you know, well, I've never seen it, so it can't be true. I'm just saying that we have never seen something inorganic become organic. Except for one time. That's right here. Right here in day three. When God causes vegetation to grow on his newly formed land. God is the only one who is able to bring life into existence. That's good news for us as Christians. As we hold on to Genesis chapter 1. We can remember that God is in complete control of his creation. God is in complete control of his creation. He has formed all of it. He created light. He created skies. He created seas. He created land. He created vegetation. All of us. All of it reminding us that God is in complete control. This is the God who take, took the earth that was formless and without void, or with void, and made it into what we see today. This is the God who had a plan from the very beginning and will accomplish those purposes in the very end. This is a God who speaks and things come into existence. This is a God who is completely, utterly, 100% in control of his creation. If you wonder if God is in control of your life, if you feel like your life too messy for God. God doesn't understand what's going on. God's not in control. Here in Genesis, be reminded that God is in complete control. Creation, yes. All of creation, including your life. Let's keep looking, picking up in verse 14. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good And there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. On day one, God speaks light into existence. Here on day four, God creates the light bearers, the sun, the moon, the stars. He creates those and brings them into existence. If you've read this passage before, you might be wondering here why it describes the sun and the moon without calling them the sun and the moon. It just calls them the greater light and the lesser light. You might be wondering, what's going on there? Why doesn't the author just describe them like that? To understand that, we have to remember the context of Genesis. Genesis was written during a time when Israel was in the middle of the wilderness. They were still recovering from their time in Egypt. Now, the people of Egypt believed that the sun and the moon were gods. And the message of Genesis 1 is radically countercultural. Not only is it saying that what you think is a god, Egypt, 
It's created by God's hands. Not only is it saying that, it's saying it doesn't even deserve a name because it is a part of God's creation. God is utterly in control of his creation. That's really what the argument of Genesis 1 is, that God is the only God. He is the only creator. He's the only one who is in charge. We see that throughout Genesis 1, but especially in these last three days. There were people, there were cultures back uh, in, in this time period who believed that the sky was a God, that the waters were a God, that birds were gods, that sun, moon, and stars were gods, that animals were gods, that sea creatures were gods, and the the message of Genesis 1 is that there is no other god besides our god. Everything else is created by him. That's the message of Genesis chapter 1. Let's keep looking in verse 20. It says this, And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. On day two, God creates skies and oceans. And here on day five, God fills those skies and those oceans with living things. Notice the parallels here between days one through three and days four through six. In day one, God creates light. In day four, God creates light bearers. In day two, God creates the water and the heavens. And in day five, God fills the water and the heavens with living things. In day three, God creates the land and vegetation. In day six, God fills the land and vegetation with living things. Again, God is forming his creation. He's filling his creation, reminding us of God's great power, of God's great desire to bring order to his creation out of the chaos. I love the the word here, the language here that's used to describe the the living creatures that are in the oceans. It says that the waters swarm with living creatures. Now this word swarm is actually used a couple other places in scripture. And it's the same language that's used in, in Exodus when the Egyptians are concerned about the growing number of Israelites in Egypt. They're concerned about the growing population of the people of Israel. They're concerned about this growing swarm of Israelites. And it's a word that is used to describe that this is a place that is teeming with life. And if you've ever gone snorkeling or had the chance to go to the ocean and just take a look at God's underwater creation, you know that this word swarm is just perfect describing this part of God's creation. There are animals of countless shapes, sizes, colors that fill God's creation from different sizes as big as the blue whale all the way down to the smallest phytoplankton. God created them all and they all swarm in his oceans. God is a powerful God. Let's pick up in in verse 24. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock 
and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the, living, and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Mentioned earlier, in day three, God creates land and vegetation. In day six, God fills that land with living creatures. And over and over and over again, here in days four through six, we are reminded that God is the only uncreated one in the universe. God is the only uncreated one. Everything else comes into existence from his hand and is the only uncreated one. He's the only one who is worthy of worship. Genesis 1 casts great doubt on other stories of our origin, whether that is ancient stories or modern-day stories of our origins. The ancient Egyptians said that the sun and the moon were gods. Genesis chapter 1 says God created those. Ancient Babylonians believed that all of creation was formed out of a dead God. Genesis chapter 1 said God created it all out of nothing. In our culture today, the naturalist story says that all of this came about by chance, by random happenings over the course of millennia. Genesis 1 reminds us that God is in charge. God is in control. He has a plan for his creation. He is the only uncreated one. He's the only one worthy of worship. As we look at the rest of day six, we see that the narrative slows down. We get to the the part of this story that talks about God's creation of humanity. And that's what the rest of this chapter is about. Let's just read this. It says this. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image and the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Story of our origins as humanity, absolutely fascinating. It lands right in between too high a view of humanity and too low of a view of humanity. If you are prone to think that of, of humanity too highly, Genesis 1 reminds us that we have much in common with animals. We share a day of creation with the animals, that we are given the same commandment, the same blessing to be fruitful and multiply as animals are. In a very real sense, we are animals. 
But lest we have too low a view of humanity, Genesis 1 reminds us that we are far more than just animals. We have been created in the image of God. We have been created to be like God. We have been created by God to be his governors over his creation. That God, in his infinite wisdom and his infinite grace, has given us authority to rule alongside him in his creation. I think of the Chronicles of Narnia, when we see the Pevensey children. They are given the authority to be rulers, to be kings and queens over Narnia, alongside Aslan, the Christ figure in that story. Just like Aslan, they are to rule over his kingdom. In the same way, God has created us for the same purpose, to rule over his creation. Now, one of the things that I mentioned earlier is that, that Genesis um, talks a lot about different origin stories or has a lot of origin stories that, that give us a good background. And there were a number of creation stories that were out there at the time of Genesis, the writing of Genesis. There were stories from ancient Egypt. There were stories from ancient Sumeria, ancient Babylon, ancient uh, Canaan. All of these different places had different stories about how they thought the world and everything came into existence. And we look at these stories and we compare them to Genesis 1. We actually see that there are a number of similarities to Genesis 1. But one of the big things, the significant things, is not the similarities, but it is the differences that we see in Genesis 1 and these other stories, especially when it comes to the creation of humanity. In virtually every other creation account, the creation of humanity is not a good thing. Virtually every other account, the gods created humanity because they wanted slaves. They were sick of working themselves, and so they decided to create slaves to do the work for them. They wanted food, and so they decided to create slaves who would provide them with food. Several times in these other creation stories, these different gods would get really nervous whenever humanity's population began to grow. And so they would send famine and plague to dwindle the population down. When we look at Genesis chapter 1, the true story of creation, it is radically different. We see that God doesn't create humanity to be his slaves. He creates humanity to rule alongside him. God doesn't create humanity to provide him with food. This text reminds us that God actually provides food for humanity. God doesn't see the growth of human population as a threat. God actually encourages it and blesses it when he says, be fruitful and multiply. The creation of humanity is not only not a bad thing, it is the pinnacle of God's creation. Humanity is the pinnacle of God's creation. I love the way one commentator puts it. He says this, consider this. Though you could travel a hundred times the speed of light, past countless yellow-orange stars to the edge of the galaxy and swoop down to the fiery glow located a few hundred light years below the plane of the Milky Way. 
Though you could slow to examine the host of hot young stars, luminous among the gas and dust. Though you could observe close up the proto-stars poised to burst forth from their dusty cocoons. Though you could witness a star's birth in all your stellar journeys. You would never see anything equal to the birth and wonder of a human being. For a tiny baby girl or boy is the apex of God's creation. But the greatest wonder of all is that this child is created in the image of God. This child was once not, now as a created soul. He or she is eternal. He or she will exist forever. When the stars of the universe fade away, that soul shall still live. Last week we talked about the greatness of God and creation. How creation points us to God. Calls us to worship God. The greatness of God is not most clearly seen in the things around us. It's seen in us. You, not a hot, burning star. You, not a color-changing fish in the coral reefs of the ocean. You, not the Rockies or the Himalayas, is God's most beautiful and precious creation. Understanding that gives us a great sense of human dignity, but it also gives us a great sense of responsibility that we as his creation are to point others to him. We are to show others the greatness of of God. And after God creates humanity, the capstone of his creation, he is finished. And he's looking over his finished creation. He sees all of it and he says, it is very good. It is very good. That which was once like clay, uninhabitable, chaotic, dark, God has fully formed into a precious jewel. It is very good. As this story closes and we close this morning, we see that after God declares everything is good, he rests. Let's take a look at the final few verses here. Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. God rests on day seven, not because he's tired, but because he is completely satisfied in his creation. He takes the seventh day and he declares it holy. Every other day, God has taken it and he has declared it good. The seventh day, God declares it holy. And we could talk a lot about the significance of that. I just want to talk about one small part of this seventh day. And that is that the seventh day, the day God rests on, points to our future rest in Christ. It points to our future rest in Christ. See, all of us are very well aware that God's creation didn't stay very good for long. We live in a broken, hurting world. We all live in a world where we are trying to prove ourselves to one another, trying to prove ourselves to God. We are trying to make 
everything okay in our lives. And it's in the midst of that that God rests. Hebrews tells us that because of the cross, the people of God can enter into a Sabbath rest. They can enter into this same rest that we see God enter into here on day seven. Here, in the very beginning of the story of God, we are seeing it point to the cross. We are pointing it, it is, it is pointing to the great, wonderful truth that God has died for us so we can experience the rest that he intended us to experience. We can experience the relief that God intended us to experience. And in a way, that's what all of creation is pointing to. Creation is reminding us and assuring us of God's infinite power and God's infinite love for us. It reminds us of God's infinite power in the way he performs creation, that he is the only uncreated one in creation, that he went to the cross for us to bring us back into this rest. And we also see God's infinite love because God in his wonderful grace and his wonderful love has created us as the pinnacle of his creation. And not only that, but when we led a rebellion against God, he chose to die for us to allow us to enter into that rest. Even when his image bearers reject him, God continues to love them. God continues to pour out his blessing on them. He chooses to die on their behalf to give them the rest that they missed out on in Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. To allow us to enter into that rest. Not trying to prove ourselves, but instead being content with who God has made us. Genesis 1 is, is a powerful story. It's a story that gives significance to our search for meaning. It is a story that helps us to make sense of the world. It is a story of our creation, yes, but it is far more than that. It is a story of Genesis, of origins. It's a story of God. It's a story of us. It's a story helps us to make life make sense. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what it has to reveal to us about who you are. What it has to reveal to us about who we are. What it has to reveal to us about your great love for us, the great power you show us in creation. God, I pray that you would help us to latch on to that this morning. That we would trust in you, the creator of all, the one who is in charge of everything, who is the ruler of everything. That we would look to you, the only uncreated one, who is only one worthy of worship. And that we would rejoice in the great power and the great love that you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.